0: We are in Hebrews. We have three weeks left of our 26-week journey through the book of Hebrews. And quite honestly, I don't want to leave this book. I have loved my time in the book of Hebrews. It has shaped my life. Maybe you're like, I'm good. <laughs> Let's get on to the next thing. But we've got three weeks left, and I think there are three incredible weeks. And so we are in Hebrews chapter 12 today. And we're just going to start out by reading... Uh, the passage that has, that God has for us today. And so we're in verses 14, and we'll run all the way through the end of the chapter to verse 29. And so let's read this together. It says, Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which, and for holiness without no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal, for you know that afterwards he desired to inherit the blessing. He was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears." For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of trumpets and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, and this, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festals gathering, and to the assemblies of the firstborn who enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for your word. Uh, we believe it is, is necessary for our lives. We thank you for the spirit that brings these words to life in our hearts. And so, Lord, we're asking that you would bring conviction and gladness where we need it. That you would use this word to humble us, to encourage us. That we would submit to its words. That we would hear its warnings. And that we would try to be faithful to you in this, our time and place. And so, Lord, we thank you. And we pray this through the precious blood of Christ our Lord, Amen. Now I don't know if you've ever played one of those games, one of those games, where you start with a a very zoomed in image uh, of a particular spot and a greater image, right? So you get this sort of pixelated color that's all you see and then eventually what happens is they begin to zoom out and you see greater context and greater definition and and what was maybe opaque and green and you couldn't figure it out becomes oh it's a cucumber that's what it was now i now i see those things well i played i played this game with kids at midweek this past this past Wednesday, uh, and I was, I was blown away by our kids. Some of our kids didn't understand that you needed to wait for the picture to zoom out before you started guessing. The moment they saw some sort of colored blob, they s- shouted with great conviction at what they thought it was. Uh, I, there was a kid who, uh, uh, an image of a red pixelated disc Came onto the screen, you and I know it's gonna zoom out. He did not. He did not consider that this was not some sort of version of a pixelated red disc. And he shouted with great conviction. He said, It's a pancake. And I thought, what? And then pretty soon there is a sum of kids that started, yes, that's what it is, it's a pancake. And so I asked, like, how many in here go home and eat red pancakes? And then to my surprise, like half the kids were like, Yeah, I eat red pancakes all the time. I don't know what you're talking about. And then my mind was populated with tons of questions for their parents. Like, like what kind of, is this red velvet pancakes that we're talking about? Because I want to be included in that. But then as we begin to zoom out, what did we see? This is pepperoni, right? And that pepperoni, this red pixelated disc was a part of a pizza. And even at the side of a pizza, some of the kids were like, I think it's still a pancake. And I was like, this, you guys, I'm going to go teach the adults. I can't handle this, right? (laughs) We have been on a similar journey uh, ourselves in recent weeks. We have been zooming out on something very pixelated. For us, it's not a red pancake. For us, it's been the subject of faith. Chapter 11 is this very famous scripture known as the Hall of Faith, Hebrews 11, significant With the ideas of faith. And we've looked at all of these Old Testament men and women from the old. And we looked at all that they did. And they were revered by all in that day. But our author wanted us to see these great men and women. Not through the eyes of their accomplishments. Not for their virtue. But he wanted us to see them for their faith. His he wants to remind his readers and us that all of those in the past that you thought were special since your childhood were in fact not really that special. In fact, what made them distinct was their great belief in the promises and the faithfulness of God. None of these Old Testament saints as we learned got the full measure of the promise that God had said to them on earth. They all died before receiving it, yet they all died believing that one day God's promise would come true in their life in a restored kingdom. And so as we turn from chapter 11 into chapter 12, we begin to find the author sort of building our understanding of what it means for us to walk a faith-filled journey in this life like those in the past. How do we walk by faith. And we have proceeded through this chapter, chapter 12. In a sense, we have zoomed out as we have gone to create better clarity and context. One of our elders, David Shepherd, a couple of weeks ago, looking at the very first two verses of Hebrews 12, talked about faith being like a race. Uh, this idea that there is a timely manner to our time on earth and that we are sort of heading towards Jesus who has already secured for us a victory. And a reward. So he is echoing the, the words of somebody like the Apostle Paul, who speaks to the Corinthian church, and compares the life of a Christian faith or a faith-filled journey to a sporting event that requires great self-discipline. It's a competition of some sorts, not not competing against each other, but it, in some ways competing against our. Selves. And then lastly, last week, Caleb kind of zoomed out a little bit further, and he, he brought to this uh, us this, this idea that, that there's a struggle in this life of faith, that, that we as believers endure hardships, that there's an innate battle against the sin that so entangles us, that there's a battle to resist temptation, and that we must take seriously following the commands of God and following the way of Jesus. And so this race got a bit more involved, as Caleb would say. Uh, it became more like a marathon. And then he zoomed out a little bit further and then said that this journey is, is about us being disciplined by the Lord, that out of his great love for us, God disciplines us to condition us through our circumstances and our hardships and our struggle, that God has our end product in mind, and he disciplines us to help us arrive there. Like any good father would discipline their son and daughter for their future flourishing. And so with that, it brought to this understanding that maybe the life of faith is this sort of Training expedition in some ways, and then this morning we just read that God will, as He said, someday shake not only the earths but the the earth but the heavens as well. Everything that is not of God and everything that is not for God will be shaken and it will crumble and fade away, and it will will reveal the people of God and the kingdom of God. And so, as we read that this morning, maybe in your brains you said, "Well, man, this." faith journey feels a bit like a test where we must resolve ourselves to hold fast and be pure as God removes the impurities and the godlessness from our lives and the world. And so you could say in chapter 12, we have moved from a pixelated image to one that finds greater clarity of what a life of faith looks like. Now, it might lead us to ask this question, so what is it? <laughs> is the life of is it a race, Steve? Is this a race that I have to sprint? Is, is it a marathon that I have to endure? Is it, a, is it a training exercise that's sort of focused on my growth? Or is it a test that's about revealing the truest sense of our hearts and our desire? What? is this thing. And the reality is, is that we can say yes. to every single one of those terms on the screen, we can say yes, and we can find great theological understanding in each of those aspects. But we might ask another question. Is there a term or an idea that might encompass all of those things? That might express a life that is a race where there's a Time element to it. That it would express it as a marathon, that there is a struggle to endure, that there is a training to this life that is focused on our growth, and that there is a test in this life that reveals our hearts. Is there a word or an idea that conveys all of those things? And the answer is yes, there is a word. And we find it here at the end of chapter 12. Not specifically do we find the word itself, but we find an understanding that gives us what the word is. And so we've got some work to do today to understand what it is that God is calling us to in this life of faith. So the author begins this section. He begins this section by reminding us That this life of faith is not a singular journey. It's not individualistic. That the life of faith is one about community. That faith is to be lived out alongside of others who trust and love God and believe in his promises. And we are to, in a way, to help each other keep pace. To say, hey, you're doing this way too fast, all right? To say to others, like, hey, let's let's catch up here. To keep others from, from moving off course, we are to sort of look over each other, helping each other along the way. And what are we helping each other towards? Well, the Scripture says that we are moving towards holiness. That without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now, in Scripture, holiness means to be set apart. It it means to be different. But, you know, we have all sorts of different in this world. What does this different mean? Does it mean to be different in the way that we talk or walk or different in the way that we dress? How are we different? Well, the difference for the people of God who walk this life by faith is that we are becoming conformed into the image of the Son, That the longer that we walk this journey of faith together, we begin to look more like Jesus and less like ourselves and the world. And I want to dive into this idea of holiness for a second. You know, the scriptures say to us that it is by faith or by grace that we are saved through faith. And that is not of your own doing. It is a gift from God. When we place our faith in Jesus, the righteous demand that God has against sin is satisfied through the Son. Christ was tested and tempted in every way on earth, and he remained sinless, holy, holy, holy. Holy is the Lord. The holiness of Christ is what made Him a perfect and just sacrifice to atone for our sins. Christ, by faith, atones for us, and then He adopts us through grace into His family. And this is what the Apostle Paul says takes place. He speaks this to the church in Coloss- Colossae. He says, "For you have died by by faith; we have died to ourselves, and you are." Your life is now hidden in Christ. That it is no longer I that lives, that Christ lives in me. And so there is a sense in which you and I are under the umbrella of the holiness and the righteousness of Christ. It is the holiness of Christ that makes us acceptable to God. It is the holiness of Christ that brings forgiveness for our sins. It is the holiness of Christ that brings the work of the Spirit into our lives. It is the blood of the holy and blameless Christ that shields us from the wrath that God has against a humanity that rejected His love to serve themselves. It covers us from the condemnation that separates us us from the love of God forever. And so in a sense, there are two perspectives of holiness. There is a vertical perspective of holiness, and there is a horizontal perspective of holiness. From above, when God sees you, he sees his son. You are hidden in the righteousness and the holiness of Christ. But horizontally, we still see ourselves very much as broken, sinful humanity. Now, to get a better idea, I would want you to think about a kiwi fruit, right? Take a kiwi fruit and cut it open and lay it on the countertop. And if you were to take that kiwi fruit and you were to look over the top of that kiwi fruit, what would you see? You would see the sweet, vibrant fruit, wouldn't you? Now, if you were a bug on the tabletop, what kind of view would you have? You would see a very rough, scratchy exterior, nothing alluring about it, uh, nothing pretty drab. So look, there is a sense in which we are holy and we are becoming holy at the same time. We are holy and we are becoming holy at the same time. We are pursuing the holiness that Christ hides us with. To reflect to the world the glory and the goodness and the love of God. That God would peel back our iniquity, that He would peel back our impurity, that others would see the sweet and vibrant fruit that is Christ Jesus living in our lives. We are to pursue holiness. And so, listen, God has one will. For you in life. I don't know if you ever question what God's will for you in life, but God has made one thing known holiness is the will of God for our lives. Holiness is the will of God. Paul says in the book of Thessalonians, he says, For this is the will of God your sanctification. Sanctification meaning to become holy or the process of being made holy. God has no other will greater than you and I pursuing holiness. Not an outward holiness that lets everybody know that I'm better than you that is void of an internal heart change, not a holiness that is all internal, that is devoid of any outward works of righteousness, not a holiness that lives in our minds but not in our hearts, but a holiness that resembles the Son, to be holy inside, in our hearts, in our thoughts, in our actions. That is the will of God for our life, as we are being compelled to that holiness By the love and the grace of Christ Jesus, who poured out his life for us. And this scripture says that you and I, we can't do that alone. I don't care how good you think you are. It says that we cannot pursue this sort of holiness alone. That this is sort of a group project, if you will. Now, I didn't like group projects in college or high schools. But this is a group project that is worthy of our attention Why is it a group project? Because we simply cannot trust ourselves. And maybe that's all, if you don't know the name of Christ, maybe that's all that you need to hear today because you know it to be true in your life already. You simply cannot trust yourself. So this is a group project, which means what? It means that we are to strive for peace with one another that we are to strive for unity. Our our scriptures say strive for this. Now, culturally, this idea of, of peace and holiness seems to be more about retreating. It hints at withdrawing from people. But the Greek word here for strive in this passage actually translates into prosecute or persecute. It means to be annoying about it. It means to pester. It means to be the kid on the car, on the long journey that can't stop asking, are we there yet? We are so consumed with getting peace Finding peace, striving for peace and holiness, that it becomes the compulsion of our lives, that we simply cannot rest until we have made our wrongs right, that we simply cannot rest until we've owned our part, that we can't rest until we go to our brother and sister in grace and reveal to them their sin, whether it was knowingly or unknowingly against us. We are pestered by finding peace in pursuing holiness. Because we value unity far above our comfort, far above our pleasure, and we will strive to do whatever it takes to be unified and stop quarreling. Why do we do that? So we can walk this faith journey together. Think of how much stronger we are together as a body of Christ unity at peace than we are as fragmented, disjointed movements. And together we are to keep watch over one another. And I know that sounds gross. I got to watch over everybody? It's not about personal protection. It's not about self-righteousness. It's about the well-being of the flock. And it's about the greater glory of God. He says, look carefully that you prevent gracelessness. That you stop, being helping, you stop people from being graceless. That we extend to others the same unmerited and undeserved grace that we have received by Christ Jesus. That we extend that to others. Now, isn't it interesting that we ourselves, more often than not, desire a fuller measure of grace given to us than we ever will extend ourselves. And so the scripture says that we have to help each other in this, to extend to one another the same scandalous grace that the Lord has given to us by his death. And he says to cut off the root of bitterness, because the root of bitterness creates the fruit of bitterness in our lives. That we are to strive for peace that we would kill the root of bitterness because bitterness is toxic. Bitterness spreads like wildfire. You know, this church in the first century has seen people come into its congregation and they have used and they have abused their generosity and they have not left quietly. They have left this little congregation and they have tried to persecute and condemn them. This is the stuff that creates bitterness. But this faithful writer says you got to knock it off. You gotta let it go. Address the issue. Muster up as much grace and forgiveness as you can imagine that the Lord has given to you. And if you need to address the issue, you dress it gracefully. And no matter what the response is, you show grace and forgiveness. Because your bitterness does not hurt the person that you're bitter against, it actually destroys you. Bitterness is a poison that goes down easy, that slowly kills the person it hosts. its host, and it slowly kills the church that it grows into. You know, anger is something that is a little bit more flashy. Anger is something that we can visually see and we can say, hey, put, stop to that. But bitterness is stealthy. It's undetected and it grows in our hearts. And here's what ends to happen. We begin to gossip. Can you believe they said this? And then we gossip and we build teams against and we put other people against each other. And before we know it, bitterness has spread. We have to rip the root of bitterness out of our hearts. It is killing us and it will kill the church. We have to let it go. We have to be a people that call each other to reconcile to one another. And then we must gracefully and humbly walk into very... Hard and difficult things in sexual immorality, in people who are impulsively finding instant gratification, and we are to humbly and gracefully walk into those areas and with love in our hearts, call people out and up towards the Savior. Not because we're better than anybody, but because that we know that those things result in regret and the lack of an ability to repent. And so this race turned marathon, turned training exercise, turned test, uh, and and turned into us keeping each other on pace, not out of the means of self-righteousness, but of genuine love and grace for one another. This is what the life of faith is. And then our author, he zooms out a little bit more, and he gives us these two mountains, and this is an interesting that he writes these two mountains in here. The first mountain, as we find in verse 18, is, is we hear of Mount Sinai, where God first established the old covenant, where he gave the law, the old covenant with his sacrifice and its priesthood and its tabernacle, and notice how it's depicted like there's trembling and there's fear. There is nothing about that mountain that would make anyone want to go back there, least they die. Moses, the great patriarch and leader, even said, "I tremble with fear." And then there's a second mountain that is depicted as a mountain of joy, with innumerable angels and ongoing festivals or festivals. There's a celebration. Going on all the town and on that mountain all the time. All and on that mountain is God, the judge. And this is a picture of Mount Zion. This is the heavenly city. This is where God's people will live with him in eternity in the, the new heavens and the new earth. And it is where we all will meet the living God as our judge. But notice who is with God on that mountain. It says, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. They are the men and women of faith who have been judged worthy, not because of their merit or effort, not anything about them, but only because of the work of the perfect and holy Christ who stood in their stead whose sacrifice is superior to any of the sacrifices of the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. That's the idea of his blood being, bringing a better word than that of Abel's. Christ's sacrifice brings to us a better hope. And so there's a contrast between these two mountains. Sinai is depicted with fear and trembling, while Zion is depicted and told as a place of love and forgiveness and joy. Sinai is where the law is given where men and women find their guilt Mount Zion is the kingdom of God where men and women come to be made holy and again we hear this author speaking and teaching about the surpassing greatness of the new covenant of Christ far superior than the old the old covenant reveals our guilt the new covenant and the new covenant alone is what makes God's people holy holy And he tells us this as a bit of a warning. He tells us as a bit of a warning to not go back to Sinai, to not go back to the law, no matter how many people want to tell you to do so. He says, don't refuse him who speaks. Now, he's not talking about himself. What he has in mind is the one who lives on the mountain. He says, don't refuse him who speaks. He's referring to Jesus, the Messiah. God has illuminated the work of the Son, for the eyes of men and women to see. And he is saying here, and he's sticking with this contrast, that in these two mountains, and he's reminding us of the consequences that faced the people who rejected the message on Sinai. And he's saying, as terrible as those consequences are, far greater is the consequence of the one who rejects the message and the work of the holy begotten Son of God. And from that mountain, it says that God will shake the earth again. Not just the earth, but the heavens. And he will make an eternal home for his people. And why will he shake it? He will shake it to remove everything that is not of God or for God from ever coming into his kingdom. And so let's, let's zoom out fully here. We've got all the context. What is going on? God has given us a location We've come into the city, the holy city, Mount Zion. He says that we're already in that city. Furthermore, he's saying that now we are receiving the kingdom of God. And so there is a place that we've already come to. There's a kingdom that we're already receiving by faith in Christ, which means that as we believe and trust in the promises of God, that we are believing in the hope of God. That is the new kingdom coming to us. We have them, but they are not fully realized. And God has called us to lock arms together and to stand on his promises until they do. And so here we have a race that is time sensitive. We have a marathon that's full of struggle. We have a training expedition that grows us. We have a test that reveals our hearts where future promises and rewards resolve us and strengthen us. But furthermore, we do those things together, communally and not alone. And so what is he talking about well, let me pull you all the way back to almost towards the beginning of Scripture. And maybe you remember the story of God's people in Egypt. That God's people in Egypt were in bondage, that they were in slavery. And God raised up a leader and his leader, Moses, called his people out of slavery, out of Egypt. It's a term that we today call the Exodus. Maybe you've heard of the Exodus. Moses calls the people of God out of Egypt. The Exodus is something that we believe is in the past. That God's people journeyed with timeliness in mind, with great struggle and training and testing to secure the promised land. But we have just read in chapter 11 that the promise never arrived, nor did they ever believe that they received the promise. The promise was to come in the restored kingdom after the Messiah. And so chapter 12 reminds us that God is still calling his people out of the world. Out of slavery. And he has said in verse 1 that we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, that we are joined by and encouraged by all the faithful heroes of the old covenant who have yet to receive the full promise, whom the author says in chapter 11 will not be made perfect apart from us. Together, we looking to Christ Jesus not Moses, are being called out of this world. Together, we are journeying to Zion and not Sionai. That God's faithful people in the past, in the present, in the future, are continuing the exodus. A life of faith is an exodus where we leave behind everything that will be shaken. All the entrapments of the world, the folly of ourselves, and we we journey with God through struggle and training and testing towards His promises. But we don't have a physical location on Earth that we are journeying to, like those in Egypt. The Scripture says that the Kingdom of God is coming to us; that it's coming to us, those of faith. It is not that we're leaving our homes. You're not called to leave your children. You're not called to leave your jobs or, or the people that you love or your hobbies, to go and live in another land. But we are preparing ourselves to live in the kingdom of God that is coming to us. We are preparing ourselves by doing what? By becoming holy. That we live like we will when the ever-coming kingdom of God fully arise. This exodus is a race, a struggle, a suffering. It's a training where we're disciplined. It's a test. God is shaking his people to remove all the material things that we think are important, that entrap us, that enslave us. He is graciously shaking us from our iniquity that holds us in slavery. And so if we could just zoom out for a moment... If we could zoom out from our lives for a moment and see the full picture here that the people of God has, have never stopped pursuing the promises of God by faith. It didn't stop with the promised land. It didn't stop at Sinai. It will only stop when God returns to the earth. We link our arms with the Old Testament brothers and sisters, the saints of the old, surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. And we're leaving behind the world as the kingdom of God comes to us. That is the big picture of faith for the believer. But sometimes we are so zoomed into our lives that we think life is much more than about becoming holy and pursuing after God. We look at the circumstances of our life and we look at them and we say, oh, life is about being happy. And then we move to this circumstance and we say, life is about being successful. Or we might look at this circumstance and we say that life's about money or profit or pleasure. We live lives that are zoomed in and we have no idea of what life is really about. But we pretend that we do. But the word has called us to zoom out. God has called us to zoom out. Because all of those things that we think life is about are going to be burned up by the consuming fire that is the Lord. And so will we resolve ourselves to hold on to a kingdom that will never be shaken or to hang on to all of the things that hold us in bondage that will be shaken free along with us. God's people have never stopped pursuing his promises by faith. Will you wait in these moments where you're unsure of what's next to do to let the picture become a little clearer? Will you understand the big journey that we have as believers in Christ to pursue holiness. That when you lived your zoomed in life, that you might believe in those little moments that God is better than that. That men, when you're tempted to look at that screen, that you believe in this moment that God is better and I could trust Him. That husbands, you believe that. Dying for your wife as Christ has died for the church doesn't feel good. But by faith, we trust that Christ is better than that. That we trust him more than the singular temptations of our life. We live the assumed out life, knowing this is about pursuing holiness. And that together, we're in it. And there are far greater things ahead, as C.S. Lewis said than we will ever leave behind. We have a God that pulls us out of slavery, out of bondage, and he is worthy of our worship. He is the center of our lives. He is due our reverence and our awe. Lord, we just come before you, and we confess, Lord, that we make this life more about us, about our singular moments of zoomed-in living, then we understand that life is about journeying together to become holy, to become what we are through the sun, that the world would know you, that they would see your glory echoed in the world. And so, Lord, we help, will you help us to see the picture more clearly? Will you help us to know that in the midst of these struggles and training and discipline, Lord, that you are doing good in our lives, that we can trust you by faith. And we pray this in the beautiful name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.